good to be back with you. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to dispel a rumor that started last week. Um, I think most of you know I wasn't here, and uh, some of you may have heard uh, that uh, I was playing hooky, and I was uh, running a half marathon. And um, not just any half marathon, but as the rumor goes, uh, I ran a women's diva half marathon. And I just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to tell you that that rumor is 100% absolutely true. Uh, it's, uh, I think uh, Rufus said it last week, it's, uh, um, it was kind of a bucket list thing for my wife, and she asked me to do it, and, and so um, I did. Although, you know what I told her to begin with, I said, you know a bucket list means you do it once and then you're done, right? I have a feeling that's not going to be the case. But, uh, but I will say, you know, it's, um, it, was a, it was a bit of a stretch. I only saw th three other guys running. There was 2,500 women dressed in tutus and pink. And actually, I had to show you a picture. This is just looking backwards, you know. And there's as many on the forward side of people getting ready to run. And uh, I felt like, you know, and I'm kind of a tall guy. I felt like a giraffe running with flamingos. Like, that's, that's how a giraffe. I'm just, you know, just looking around. My wife, um, as Pete Gaudet said, I did give up my man card, but, uh, <laughs> but I got husband points, and that's all I have to say about that. So. <laughs> but I also came back um, this week and heard uh, the great things happened yesterday. A lot of you showed up to do the, the cleanup, and, and I was at a wedding. I couldn't attend, but I, I heard a lot of people wearing City Hope shirts, and I'm and, uh, just grateful that you showed up. Um, they took lots of pictures. If you haven't seen them, you can go to the City Hope Facebook site and, and just see um, a lot of people picking up trash and uh, just showing our city that we care. So we're grateful for what the Lord is doing and, and hope that you're encouraged uh, not just to um, live out our Christianity within the confines of either our homes or, or our church walls, but to care about our community. So I was just excited to hear about what happened and I'm praising the Lord for that. Turning our attention to the word, we are going to um, have our very final message on Galatians um, chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, if you want to turn there. Galatians chapter 6, 14 through 16, entitled this one boast, um, and I think you'll see why in just a moment. Let me ask you to pause with me and let's ask the spirit of the living God to do what only he can do, and that is take his word and light it on fire in our hearts. Lord, we come to you as your people, and we have our Bibles open before us, or we will see it on the screen behind me, and we don't want to take it lightly that we have access to your holy word, the scripture, that it was your word that caused everything that exists to come out of nothing. It is the declaration of your word that raises dead hearts to life. And it will be the spoken word that brings about a new creation. And we don't want to take it lightly that we have your word within our hands. And, and at the same time, knowing that we have to come humbly by faith, trusting that your spirit will take that word and um, set it on fire within our souls and, and change us. And that's what I pray for this morning. Lord, um, we, 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 we need to come humbly and, and, and with faith depending upon your power to take your word and to breathe life into our souls. So I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that you would use specifically this section of verses in Galatians 6, 14 through 16. I pray that you would remind your people who they are, remind them that they are who they are solely 
basis of what Jesus has done, not on anything that they can do or have done, either good or bad. And I pray that you would just rivet that into our souls so that we might um, know who we are because of your love. And I pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to tell you that um, I have a next-door neighbor who uh, fought in World War II, um, a Navy guy. And, um, and he has, on different occasions, when we've been, been out in the yard, he's, he's taken the time to share with me little bits that he did. And um, he actually was on a ship uh, that picked up the wounded and dead from Iwo Jima, Marines. And uh, in him talking about these things, and it's taken me a while to, to build a friendship where he can actually explain some of what he did in World War II, um, there are still things that he can't speak about and bring tears to his eyes. And I think he's 90 years old now. Just a precious gem. And uh, I was reminded this last week that, that those, uh, those men who, who fought so bravely in World War II, there are not going to be many of them left, you know. Um, and what a, what, a, what a gift to be able to have. And I was reminded of that this week, um, and I'm, I'm guessing that most of you were too, when on Friday, June 6th, um, kind of the world commemorated um, 70 years or the 70th anniversary of, of D-Day. Um, I'm sure for some it was just news and flew over your head. And, and for me, it was one of those moments because of my neighbor that I just thought, you know, I, ju I just got to pause here for a second and just think about what happened. You know, that D-Day event um, when tens of thousands of men stormed the beach um, of where there's heavily fortified um, cliffs and bluffs of Germans and, and uh, just the courage it would take to run out of a boat um, knowing that your life was in jeopardy. Um, what an uh, amazing thing. And, and uh, most people say that that particular battle was the turning point in World War II. It is the decisive turning point. Um, which is why the world stopped and commemorated the men who, who not just fought there, but, but bled there and died there. And uh, one of the things that was stirring, and I think both of the, what I'm about to share with you, and it has um, a uh, connection, direct connection into Galatians chapter 6. Uh, one of the things that was stirring is they, they put out these pictures of, of Normandy 70 years ago, you know, just damaged, and Normandy today, 70 years later. And it's, it's just, it's moving. It's kind of stirring. Like on the left side, there's, this, is, uh, this is what happened 70 years ago, Friday. You know, as you see a plane on the beach, it's just complete mayhem and soldiers and fighting and it's dark. And then they contrasted, I think this was N uh, NBC News, contrasted the other side of the same beach 70 years later. And you just think, wow, it's striking. You know, there's life and there's a guy kicking a soccer ball. There's freedom. There's color of course those were in black and white on the left but it struck me just struck me you know the the vitality and the freedom on the right is because of the sacrifice of what's on the left you know um, the scenes on the left make the scenes on the right possible right? sacrifice secures freedom and how important it is to, to remember that sacrifice, right? And to, not just to pass it by, but, but actually to, to take time to remember it. I, another thing equally stirring on Friday was they, um, they put up uh, in audible form FDR's um, national address that he, he gave while the men were, were, were on their way or on, on the beach. 
And, uh, and then, so I listened to it, and, and it's actually in the form of a prayer, which you don't hear a lot so much anymore. And, and the beginning part of that prayer was, Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor. And he's praying this as, as, uh, as troops are giving their lives. Uh, a struggle to preserve our republic, our nation. And our civilization. And this last part caught me the most. And to set free suffering humanity. And he goes on. But to set free suffering humanity. As, you know, they say almost 10,000 men uh, poured out blood on those beaches to free suffering humanity. And you take the time to um, contemplate the, the sacrifice. And, and it does something to the soul. At least it does mine. And I think it does... Pretty much any human being who takes the time to pause and reflect on it. It's when you, you, you sense the, the enormous sacrifice of, of families and people on D-Day, the turning point. It creates with one, within one's soul a sense of humility. And also a sense of grateful joy. And it reminds you, it reminds us how, how, how incredibly precious this thing called freedom is. There's nothing to be taken lightly. It's, it's just this... It enables you to cherish it and, and makes you want to protect it and promote it and preserve it. And that was the experience of, 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 of Friday. And, and, you know, it struck me that the opposite is also true. If, if we take the time to dwell on and think about and grasp the sacrifice, then it creates that sense of grateful joy over the freedom that we have. Um, that when we lose touch with it, when we forget it, when we... we, we, we it no longer holds the mind's eye of the heart, well, then we easily become or feel a sense of entitlement and ambivalence towards what is so sacred. And it doesn't stir us anymore to, to be people who are passionate about freedom. And uh, it struck me as I was thinking about that um, and studying this verse that, that I think it's precisely what Paul calls us to as Christians, is that more than anything else, where our hearts need to dwell repeatedly over and over again is on our D-Day. That is our, our Normandy. That is far bigger and deeper and more eternal than um, what took place back in 1944. And that is the, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, when, when we're able to, with our mind's eye, just sense repeatedly, which is why we came to the table this morning, repeatedly the level and depth and sacrifice of the one man. And what he took upon himself for the sake of people like me and people like you, is it, it creates a sense and should, by the Holy Spirit, create the sense of, of humility and grateful joy and a sense of cherishing and a, and a desire and a stirring to promote the freedom that he came to give us. And that basically is the main point of, of this message this morning. Paul is going to lay out for us what is kind of the potent summation of his book and the center of his life. You might call it the central guiding rule of the Christian heart. This is what he writes in verses 14 through 16. He says, but far be it from me to boast, or your King James probably says, it does say, to glory. 
to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You notice at the beginning of verse 16, he talk, talks to, speaking to Christians, all who walk by this rule. We're no longer people who walk underneath the dominion of law, but we still walk by this rule. And what is that rule but what comes before it in verses 14 and 15, which I would summarize as this. That the rule of the Christian life is the glory in the cross and live in the freedom of a new creation or to be living in the freedom of a new creature. That's the principle of life that we're to live by. The glory in the cross and live in the freedom of what it means to be a new creature in Jesus. That's the rule. The glory in the cross. Now, we say glory in the cross and, and really doesn't do anything maybe to our heads because um, to us the cross is something that has been uh, uh, beautified. It's, you know, it's, it's an ornament we put on our, on our walls. It's, uh, they make it into earrings and pennants and, uh, and uh, necklaces and we hang them from our, our mirrors and put them on a bumper sticker and slap it on our car and, and uh, that's the cross. But Boy, the first Christians understood something quite different from the cross. I, it wasn't something beautiful, actually. It was something um, horrendously awful, bloody, torturous, uh, criminal, shameful. Something you wouldn't actually talk about. Because uh, it's an instrument of execution, not just any execution. It was a, it was a, it's, it's a symbol of, of uh, horrific brutal execution. And he's saying, my one boast? It's in the cross. Something brutal. And, and you know, if you, I was to rewrite what he wrote in verse 14 using modern equivalents. Like, but far be it from me the boast except in the hangman's noose or the gallows or the guillotine or the firing squad or the lethal injection or the electric chair cross of course being a thousand times worse someone would think what kind of a messed up twisted person are you to glory in something so repugnant and that's what he is it's just, it says this is my one boast and he had a lot of things to boast about he was a hebrew of hebrews a jew he was trained as a pharisee he's really smart uh, trained by Gamaliel. I mean, he had everything to boast. He says, I only have one thing to boast about, and it's in the, mo the most repugnant thing you can possibly think of, and that's the cross of Jesus. And it's not because Paul was a masochist that he said that. It's not the brutality itself that he gloried in, but what that brutality, willingly taken upon himself, Jesus, said about the heart of God and what it provided for us. It's like, we, we, we stopped 70 years later and commemorated um, Normandy. We didn't commemorate just the brutality of it. We, we commemorated the victory that was gained there. And we glory in the cross because that's where God gained the decisive once-for-all victory for all who would believe. It's our turning point. It's, it's God's heart. It's, 
It's the one thing that declares over us who we really are and how we're supposed to live within that understanding, the cross. The cross is so central. You can sense it in his heart. Paul would say elsewhere, he'd say, I seek to know one thing and one thing only, and that is Christ crucified. Crucified. And it's his boast. It's it's something he glories in. And that's more than just a, a word of praise. It's something that bubbles up from the heart, something that you enjoy, something that excites you, something that uh, you can't help but tell others, not because you have to, but because you can't help yourself. You know, the, 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 the father who, who has a brand-new baby boy and has a picture, and he's, he's glorying in the fact that he has a son. When he shows that picture, he says, look at my son. He's beautiful. He has a cone head, but he's beautiful. You know, he's glorying in his son. Or the, the, the young man who, 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 who uh, asks his girlfriend to marry him and hands her this ring, and, and she goes out and she shows it to her friends. She's glorying in the ring. But it's, it's more than the ring she's glorying in. Some women might say otherwise, but, um, but it's what it represents, and that is he's asked me to be his, and, and he's going to be mine, and we're going we're gonna to see vows, and we're going to have a singular love for each other, and, and, and that's exciting. So the ring is a symbol, and rejoicing and glorying in the ring, which symbolizes something so much bigger. And Paul's like, the cross symbolizes and signifies the very heart of God and the very heart of what he has done for us. It's something to be gloried in, you know? That is, that, that's part of what's supposed to be bubbling up in the Christian's heart. We don't just talk about the cross or speak about the cross in, in affectionless language as if it's the same as the word Rayleigh's or Safeway. It's like, no, this is the cross. You can sense it in the Apostle Paul. For him, this is like the death of the old man and the life of the new man. Everything comes down to that moment. So the cross for him was a mind-blowing, heart-blowing thing. And he says, this is what I glory in. This is the rule I live by, is the glory in the cross. That is something we do well to rediscover as Christians. To have that hunger, thirst, wonder, excitement, respect, humble and grateful joy for the cross. Not just a word that we speak or a song that we sing, but something that wells up inside of us. And he goes on to give a couple of reasons why in these verses right here. One, he says that we should glory in the cross because it alone, the cross, delivers us from the tyrannies of this world. That's what he means by, here in yellow, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's a death that has happened in Paul's life to the world and the world to him. In some way, shape, or form, the world and Paul are dead to each other. Now, what does that mean? I believe the world, word world, in Paul's concept was, was more than just a place dominated by death and sin and the principalities and powers of evil, although that ultimately is true. But the whole system, like the, the whole fabric of the world we live in is intrinsically oppressive. It is intrinsically subjugating of people. And we live in it every day. And we feel it every day of recognizing that the world has measures and it has weights and values and it assigns them based upon how well you do in certain ways. And, and, um, and you feel that as a man, 
people feel that as, as women. It's just like li- we live in this world where there are values assigned, and, and the whole point is to, to increase and achieve and, 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 and uh, feel better about yourself and feel like you're more worthy because you performed or, or to feel more depressed because you don't perform. And, you know, it's how do you look? How much do you own? How big's your paycheck? What are the number of titles behind your name? Where do you stand in society? Are you followed by many or by few? And all of those things are ways in which people are measured. And that is a whole system that I believe is subjugating, Paul would say. Don't be conformed to the world system. The whole system is fundamentally slavery. Because it has those weights and measures that we feel every day. And he's saying, the cross changed that for me. Paul understood that. He, he was in that. He was trying, man. Trying to be blameless. Pharisee. He knew what it was like to live in that subjugation, that whole stratification of worth and value. And he realized that the cross frees me from that. I glory in the cross. He glories in the cross. We're to glory in the cross because it tells us we're in a whole new state. Those things don't apply to us anymore. And the more that we're able to glory in the cross and, and the significance of it, to recognize that, that our value once and for all is not based on anything that we are or do, simply on the fact that we've trusted in Christ, enables you to stand outside of that whole system and live free. And it works. It really does. I mean, it's a fight to believe that all the time, but it works. To understand who I am in Christ because of the cross. And it frees me from having to live in the slave system of the world. Now, what he's not saying is that we're somehow supposed to detach ourselves from the world or retreat from the world or, or not enjoy the world. Because that, quite frankly, contradicts other things he says elsewhere in Scripture. So, in one sense, we're dead to it by way of the cross. That is, our, our worth is, is governed no longer by what the world thinks of us, but by the fact that in, in the cross of Christ, we've been accepted fully and completely by the Lord. That the world lays no more claim upon us um, as it does others. One writer put it this way, and I thought he captured it quite well in terms of what it means and doesn't mean. He wrote this. He says, the Christian faith, contrary to many Eastern religions that extol disengagement, yeah, like retreat from the world, uh, from the physical world in a non-personal nirvana, does not make one less interested in the physical world or less concerned uh, for life as created by God. That That is, the Christian faith, the cross, and what it does for us, doesn't make us detached like other worldviews and religions says, on the contrary, the gospel proclamation calls on believers to be more related to all that God has created, and so more interested in physical, the physical world, all its created life, and the welfare of people in particular. What identification with the crucified Christ does entail, however, is no longer having worldly or fleshly advantage dominate one's thinking or living. In other words, the way the world thinks no longer dominates the way we think or live. Think or live. So we're crucified as a result of it, and we can live free outside the whole soup of slavery. Two, 
he go, also goes on to say that we glory in the cross because it alone is sufficient to free us as new cre- creations or new creatures. That's verse 15. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. It doesn't matter anymore. But a new creation. New creation. You know the old way? You read your Old Testament, stop at Malachi, you realize that circumcision meant something in that time frame. So if you were a man. It's like, if you wanted to be part of the family, that's what you had to go through. That's the hoop you had to jump through. Those that weren't were outside. Those that were were inside. And if you wanted to cross and go from being a quote-unquote non-Jew to becoming a Jew, you had to go through that to be a converted Jew. This is absolute necessity. So in the old system, it had tremendous amount of value. And what Paul's saying is now that Christ has come, now that he's died on the cross and lived, he has fully qualified everyone who trusts in him, fully and completely, to be full-fledged members of his family. That stuff doesn't matter anymore. Um, the celebration of particular feasts of Yom Kippur or um, the Passover. It's like he's saying that, that stuff really, it doesn't matter anymore. Now, if we wish to practice those things as, a, as an expression of faith or as an expression of culture, that's fine. But as soon as we think that it's necessary for us to be fully included in the loving family and embrace of God, well, then we're actually going backwards. And we're not glorying in the cross anymore. We're glorying in a feast and our ability to keep a feast or do something. No, he says that that, that doesn't really matter anymore. That's not what matters. And we could put a whole list of things. (laughs) It doesn't matter whether you're a vegetarian or a meat eater to the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you're practicing your corporate worship on Saturday or Sunday to the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you're a male or a female to the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you're Filipino, German, Scottish, or Jewish to the Lord anymore. It doesn't make a difference how much baggage you have in the past or how little baggage you have in the present. That stuff, he says, doesn't matter anymore. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter at all. It means it doesn't matter in terms of your value and worth as a child of God. You can't add to it any, any bit. So he's saying, don't get all tangled up in, in the externals. The one thing that does matter is that you are a new creation. That's it, new creation. New. And it's, it's again, I, I realize that I'm speaking to our perspective here. That is to see yourself as properly related to God because of what he's done in love through his son. And that's how we're supposed to see our lives and live our lives within that scope. And only as we do, do we experience freedom. To see ourselves as new creations. Something brand new. There's a a sense in which the slate is completely wiped clean by the cross of Jesus. And we're given a brand new slate as new people as a result of the cross. And to a person who's in that subjugating world of varying worths, that really is freeing. There's a lot of women that struggle with how they look because that's blasted in front of us all the time. 
of thinking that, well, if I can't fit into a size four or a size two, well, then I feel like less of a woman, less valued, and self-depreciated. And how do you free yourself from that kind of oppressive enslavement? I think the cross is the only way of recognizing, you know what? God has given to himself completely and fully in the cross of Jesus. I'm fully and completely accepted. I'm loved beyond imagination. And he doesn't care whether I'm a size four or size two. And that's better. Then the heart is able to praise the Lord and live in freedom. You've heard this before if you've been here for a while, but it it bears repeating. Most of you guys know Ron Marlette, you know, this really lively um, head of Mission Solano. And 10 years ago, he was up here preaching, and I remember him telling the story about, you know, he was, a, he, he was a hoodlum in the day, and he'd tell you that, right? Like a wild ruffian before Christ got a hold of his heart. And uh, he felt the call while in this church body years and years ago to go up to Multnomah, and so he filled out his application. And on the application is the question, have you ever committed a felony? And Ron told the story. He's just like, well, Ron's got to, like, actually answer honestly and say yes committed a felony so Multnomah Bible College yes felony and then right, right underneath and he told me he clarified this yesterday to me he, he wrote in red pen 1 Corinthians five seventeen, which says if anyone is in Christ he is a new creature and old things have passed away period that's just like you can't, that's not just like some theology that's way out there in the sky. He's, no, I'm, I'm a new person because of my new life with Christ. And do you see how liberating that is? And that, that's how he saw himself. And he was able to claim the benefits of the cross, that he's a new creature, new creation. You can't tell me that doesn't make a difference to the heart of a person who really believes that. I'm not defined by the old creation anymore. I'm defined by the new creature Christ has created me to be, which is why we glory in the cross. And then last, third thing, that we glory in the cross because it alone makes us citizens of the true Israel. Verse 16. Because it alone, the cross, makes us citizens of true Israel. Israel. Notice, you reread again, verse 16, and as for all who walk by this rule, it's the rule, glory in the cross, and live in the freedom of the new creation, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What a precious name is the name Israel. You know, that's that, that name that God gave to Jacob way back in Genesis 32. When he said, your name's not going to be Jacob anymore. It's going to be Israel. That's my name for you. And then God would take and stretch that label over the whole nation, which is why to this day it's known as Israel. I mean, what a legacy. Uh, God speaks of Israel as my treasured possession. It's the apple of my eye. That's how much he loves Israel. And here, I believe... Paul is pointing to his readers who are not Jewish, who are not by ethnicity part of Israel. And he's saying to them, because of the cross, 
of Jesus, you now are blessed with peace and mercy as the true Israel of God. The reason I believe that is because it makes the whole point of the book. He's been arguing over and over again that, listen, I'm, I'm this strange blend, call me a mutt, of Scottish, Swedish, and German and English. There's not a stitch of Jew in me. And it would be easy for me to feel like I'm some kind of third cousin twice removed, a foster child, an appendage to God's true people. Which he's arguing against, that's not true. It makes his point that in Christ, and because of what he's done, he's made us full-fledged members of the true Israel of God. I'll tell you, I, I, I have to think about that every once in a while because um, we take these trips to, to the Holy Land, and I love the Holy Land. My wife would tell you if, I hate to say this, but if someone said, hey, man, here's a piece of land, and we'll let you into the country, and you can live here, I probably would go. I love it there. I love the land, but I'll tell you, there's something. Um, we're going again, by the way, a little commercial. Uh, there's something that's powerful about being there. Not just because of the place, but because of the people. Um, I mean, you're, you're with these people who are um, lineage of the ones who received the covenants of King David and the amazing stories. And these are people who have an ancient pedigree, and they're still alive. These are people who've made it through untold horrors in the Holocaust and before that. And they still manage to come out fighting, you know? And you're there, and I, I can't, I'm just being honest with the feelings that I have when I'm over there. It's like, I, I find myself being a little bit jealous. It's like, what it would it be like to, I, I have this as your heritage, to, to be with these people and know you identify. There's such a strong power of identity in being a Jewish person. And I find myself in those contexts just going, man, it would be really cool to be a part of that. And then I tell my jealous, envying soul an important truth. That the only one, the only one, the only one who can qualify any human being on planet Earth to be part of the Israel of God is one person. That's Jesus Christ. And I realize in that moment what Paul says here the Israel of God, I'm not on the outside looking in. I am because Jesus died on D-Day. I'm on the inside. So are you. You are the true Israel of God. Doesn't mean God doesn't have a purpose for his ethnic people. It's just to say that it's not those who carry the genes of Abraham that are the sons and daughters of Abraham. Genes is in genetics, but it's the ones who carry the faith. We are already that family. And all of it, why? Not because we have a stitch of Jew in us, but because of the cross. You can see why his principle of life is just glorious in the cross. And lives in the freedom of what it means to be a new creation, filled with the Spirit of God. Church, if, 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 if we are unable 
uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but where there is not a deep fountain of joyful glorying in that which is so crucial, spilling out, then we have very little power to do anything. It all comes from that drinking in the the realities of the cross and what it's given to us. I mean, by it and glorying in it and taking it into our souls, we are crucified to the whole world system and we're able to stand and live in freedom outside of it. Um, we at the same time are, are, are able to separate that which is, is matters from doesn't, what doesn't matter and what matters is that we're new creatures in Jesus because of his cross and we are by nature of the cross and our faith in him, we already are the Israel of God. That's who we are and it should well up within us as Something that's not just a, a affectionless word that we say. It's the source. It's a stream. It's a river. And if you don't know the Lord that way, I ask you to rethink maybe the whole approach. That maybe we've settled for this veneer of Christianity, but never discovered the source of it. It's the cross. It's always been the cross. And to retap into that root and, and to experience what it means. Just how deep and wide is the love of God communicated through the cross. And, and to let it breathe within God's church again. That's what I pray for. And if, uh, if you don't know him, I just implore you to talk to somebody um, after service. And if you are a believer, make sure you're drinking from the right well and the right fountain. That's where your joy comes from. That's where your peace comes from. That's where your sense of identity and worth comes from. Not from how well you perform in the world. Amen. God, I thank you for this word. I, I thank you that you cared enough to love people like us. And we don't deserve to be part of a, 